Man, what a week we've had, huh? You guys had a, you guys had a good week? Tell me, what's, your, what's the, your favorite thing that you've gotten to do this week? Your favorite game, your favorite activity? Just shout it out. I want to hear it. Some of you are trying to kiss up. That's fine. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's been an awesome week. It's been a fun week. I, I've enjoyed getting to spend time with you guys. I always love camp. I, I, love, I love what we get to do here. I, I love that we get to open God's word. And, and I, I hope that this week has been more than just fun for you. I, I hope it's been impactful. I hope that, that you've seen the truth, that you've been that you've been impacted by the truth. I hope that hearts and minds and lives have been changed this week, not because of me, but because of the truth of God through his word, through his scripture. But here's the thing. The week's over, or it's about to be. See, tomorrow you're going to get in cars or on buses or, or whatever, and you're going to drive back home. And you're going to leave this place. You're going to leave this bubble that you've been living in for the past week, and you're going to go back to your normal life. You're going to go back to your families. You're going to go back uh, to your friends at home. You're going to go back to sports practices. You're going to go back to school here pretty soon. I hate to break it to you. Um, And you're going to go back to normal, everyday life. And so there's this question at the end of a week of camp, what do I do with all of this? Because when you're here, when you're in the bubble, when when you're surrounded with people who are encouraging you and, and pushing you towards truth, it's really, really easy to hold these things. But when you go back home, it gets a whole lot harder. When you get back to normal, everyday life and no one's waking you up in the morning and telling you to open your Bible, no one's telling you to to memorize verses every single day because if you don't, your friends are all going to be mad at you because you're going to lose. And and no one is telling you to get up and to go to, to chapel every single day, twice a day. And when that's not happening, things get a whole lot harder. But on top of the fact that you're going back to a world that is hostile towards truth, It's not just neutral. See, here, everything is pushing you towards the truth of God, to the the, the truth of his word. But back in the real world, it's not just that no one's pushing, it's that they're pushing you in the opposite direction. There's this world that that is hostile because it's in darkness, and the darkness hates the light. And so how are you supposed to take these things that we've talked about and live them out in the real world. Because you see, everything that's true on top of this mountain, it's still true down there. Everything that's true here at camp, it's still true back at home. God is still true. The scriptures are still true. Jesus is still the way and the truth and the life. Your sin is still real, but if your faith is in Christ, then it's still dead, and you still have true life in him. All of that is still true back at home. So what does it look like to live in light of that truth? What does it look like for us to live the lives that we've been called to as followers of Christ? What is the truth of the Christian life? You know, there are a lot of people out there who will claim the title of Christian, but they will tell you lies about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. 
There are a lot of different lies. One of them is this. It's that the Christian life is supposed to look like a life filled with temporal blessings. That the Christian life is a life that is always happy, always healthy, always prosperous. That the Christian life is, is a life where everything goes your way, where God pours out temporal blessings on you, like a lot of money and a big house and a great job and a cool car and a beautiful girlfriend or a, a handsome boyfriend. Do people say handsome? How old am I? Anyway. But that's not the reality. You see, Scripture never promises us an easy life. And this idea that if we follow Christ, our life becomes easy, that's not truth, that's a lie. The truth is that Jesus says to us, in this world, you will face tribulation. See, the Bible doesn't promise ease and comfort. It doesn't promise safety and security. What Jesus promises to his followers is the opposite. He promises tribulations. He promises difficulties. He promises pain and hardship and struggle. That's what's promised. So this idea that the Christian life is an easy, easy life full of temporal blessing, it's just simply not true. There's another idea that the Christian life is supposed to look pretty much like everyone else's. That a life lived to Christ should look just like the world around us. Maybe a little bit nicer, maybe a little bit gentler, but not significantly different. That those who follow Christ, our worldview, the way that we go about the world, the way that we look at the world, the way that we understand truth should be pretty much the same as everyone else. And maybe you go to church on Sunday, but you certainly don't take anything that you learn in that building and apply it outside of that building. Because that would be hateful, and that would be bigoted, and that would be unchristian. Because Jesus, he wasn't like that at all. Well, never mind the fact that people who say that probably don't know a lot about what Jesus was like because they probably haven't read what Jesus was like because Jesus was put to death for the things that he said. But also, Scripture tells us this. In James chapter 4, it says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In John chapter 15, Jesus says that the world will hate us because we are not of this world. You see, if the darkness hates the light, and if you are children of the light, then a world filled with darkness is not going to be one that is friendly towards you. It's not going to be one that always tells you how great you are. It's going to be one that tells you that your views and your ideas and your insistence on objective moral truth is hateful that it's wicked, that it's mean, that it's antiquated, that it has no place in polite society today. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's not a life that is about getting the blessings of this world. And it's not a life that is going to win us all kinds of friends who are still in darkness. It's a life that will be difficult. It's a life that will be filled with persecution. It's a life like Jesus's. 
a life standing on truth in a world filled with lies, a life standing on the light in a world filled with darkness. That's the life that we're called to. That's the life that you go back to tomorrow. It's a life like Jesus's. So what I want to do with you this last session that we have together is I want to open up towards the end of the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This comes in the storyline of Jesus's life after everything that we've read so far. This is after Jesus's death. It's even after his resurrection. So a real, re- a real quick recap of what's happened up to this point, right? We saw that Jesus is preexistent. He is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. But at a point in time, a point in history, the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, he took on flesh. He was born as a baby, and he grew up. The Bible tells us that he grew in stature and in wisdom, that that he grew up just like any of us, except there was a difference because Jesus grew up and never once sinned. He lived a perfect life, and, and as he came of age, he started to teach. He started to teach about God and about his kingdom. The people hated what he said, and eventually they had him put to death. Eventually, Jesus gave up his own life for you and for me. He went to the cross, he died in our place, and then three days later, he rose again. Only something happened. You see, when Jesus was going around and he was teaching, he started amassing this big following. And amongst that following of people, there were 12 the 12 disciples, his 12 closest friends, closest followers, these 12 men who followed him around and learned from him. Well, one of those men betrayed him, sold him out to those who wanted to kill him, and the other 11, over the course of the night when he was betrayed, left him. One by one, they left until eventually his closest friend in the world, Peter, denied him. And not just once and not just twice, but three times, Peter, Jesus' closest friend and confidant, denied him and said, I don't know that man. And why did they do it? They did it because they were afraid. Because they were in a world that was filled with darkness and they were afraid that that darkness was going to come for them next. And so eventually Jesus goes to the cross, and there on the cross, he dies. Alone in this world, but he says that he is not alone because his father is with him. He dies, and then he rises again. And what we're going to see in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, is Jesus after he has risen from the grave, appearing to his disciples. He appears to his disciples. But when he finds his disciples, they're locked in a room. And they've locked themselves in this room because they are still afraid. They're afraid that those people who had Jesus put to death were coming for them next. 
They're afraid because this world that they're living in is hostile towards them. This world that they're living in hates them. The darkness that hated Christ hates his followers as well. And so his disciples are cowering in a locked room, afraid for their lives, when Jesus shows up. And what we're going to see is Jesus, in just a few short verses, he tells them three things. Three things that show us a picture of what the disciples' lives would be like and what our lives should be like if we follow him. So let's read John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, shows them the wounds in his hand and the wound where the spear pierced him in his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there. So the disciples are cowering in this room with the door locked because they're afraid of the people outside. They're afraid that the same people that put Jesus to death just three days earlier were coming for them next. And then Jesus pulls off this magic trick. He shows up in the room. Doesn't bother to tell us how he got there, but it's Jesus, right? And so he shows up in the room with the locked door, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And I imagine the disciples are kind of skittish, right? And and you've probably all had this moment where you start to walk up behind someone, and you realize that they don't realize you're there, but like you don't actually want to scare them, and you go, how am I supposed to get their attention without making them scream? And so you're like, hey, you know, and like you try to like come in really soft and then they jump anyway, right? And so and I almost picture that's what Jesus is doing here, but he shows up and he says something profound. He says, peace be with you. And then they turn and they see that it's Jesus. He shows them the, the wounds in his hand, the wound in his side, and they realize this is Jesus. And they rejoice because Jesus is alive. And then Jesus repeats himself and he says, peace be with you. So when we ask this question, what does this Christian life look like? I think Jesus' message to the disciples is also his message to us, and that is peace be with you. And what what does that mean? Why does Jesus say this and, and why does he say it twice? Well, let's turn to John chapter 16. John 16, look at verse 32. This is before Jesus' death and he says this to his disciples. He says, behold, The hour is coming, and indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. See, Jesus predicted that his disciples would all turn their backs on him. And when it came, that's exactly what they did. These men who had walked with Jesus, who had eaten with Jesus, who had camped out with Jesus for three years, that's literally what they had done. 
They had spent day in and day out sitting under Jesus' teachings, giving their lives wholly to him, and yet when this trial, when this difficulty came, every single one of them turned their backs on him. And now here this man who they've betrayed, some of them explicitly, others of them just by giving up hope. And here he is standing in front of them, and they realize Jesus is alive, and his message to them is not one of, you guys messed up. His message is, peace be with you. You see, when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's speaking of the peace that they have with God. He's saying, look, I'm not here to rebuke you. I'm here to give you a job to do. Jesus wasn't there to bring them condemnation. He was there to bring them direction. And so he says, peace be with you. There's that peace that we have with God because of Christ. The Christian life is defined by that peace with God. But he also said, peace be with you. Because they were not at peace before he came into that room. They were there in a room with the door locked, cowering for fear of the people outside who might want to do them harm. You see, when Jesus says to them, peace be with you, he's talking about peace with God, but he's also talking about peace with circumstances. He's telling them that because of him, because of who he is, and because of what he's done, they can have peace in a world that will always be hostile towards them. Look back at John chapter 16. We read verse 32. Let's read verse 33 now. It says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. You see, the Christian life isn't a life of ease, and it's not a life of comfort. It's not a life that promises material blessing, but it is a life that promises peace. Not, not that you'll never face hardship or difficulty or struggle, not that people won't hate you, slander you, hurt you, but that even when they do, even when this world hurls tribulations and trials and difficulties at you, if you are in Christ, you can have peace because you have peace with God. Your sins have been forgiven. Your debt has been paid. And because you have peace in circumstance because you know, you know, as Paul says, as Paul says in, in Romans 8.18, you know that the trials of this age, the difficulties of this world, the hardships of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be shown to us in Christ Jesus. You can have peace in your life because you have peace with the God of the universe and no amount of difficulty, hardship, struggle, persecution, trial, pain, Attack that this world can throw at you is worth comparing to the peace that you have in Jesus and to the hope that you have in him. The hope that you will spend eternity with him in the eternal glory of the Father. 
So the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples when he appears to them in that room is peace be with you. And the second thing that Jesus says to his disciples when he appears to them in that room is peace be with you. Because the Christian life, the true Christian life, is not a life of comfort, it's a life of peace. Of peace with God and peace with circumstances. But then Jesus continues on in chapter 20. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side. He says, peace be with you. And then he says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So when we say that the Christian life is a life of peace, that doesn't mean it's a life of leisure. It doesn't mean that the the true call of the Christian is to be at peace with God and then just kind of meditate on that for the next 70 years until they die. No, Jesus says to his disciples, you can have peace because you have peace with God. You can have peace with the world because you have hope in me. So now I'm sending you out into that world. That world that hates you, that world that reviles you, that darkness that hates the light, I am going to send you. He's specific. He doesn't just say, I'm going to send you in a general sense, but he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. How does the Father send Jesus? How how does God send his Son, Christ, into the world? What does that sending look like? Well, there are a few things, a few verses from John that we'll jump to. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, because we're going to be pretty quick here. In John chapter 12, verse 49, well, you might beat me there. All right, here we go. John 12, 49, it says this, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. You see, Jesus was sent into the world to speak the words of God. He was sent into the world to speak the words, to speak the truth of God. And in the same way, we are sent into the world by Jesus to speak the truth of God. We are sent to speak the word of God. We're sent into a world full of darkness to bring the light of the truth of Christ by speaking the word of Christ. So he was sent to speak the words of God But that's not all. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38, we see this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus came to speak the words of his Father, but he also came to do the will of his Father. God sent him to speak his words, but he also sent him to do his will. And in the same way, Christ sends us into the world to speak the truth of Jesus, to speak the words of Christ, but also to do the will, to live that truth out, to live a life that is reflective of the truth of God, to live a life that shows the truth of Christ, not a life that is devoted to my truth or your truth or the world's truth, but a life that is devoted to his truth, to his will, to what he has commanded of us. So he sends us to speak his words, he sends us to do his will, and then finally, 
A reason we've already talked about that Jesus was sent into the world in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, the father sent the son to speak the word of God, to do the will of God, and to save the people of God. And in the same way, Jesus sends us his disciples, those who know his truth, those who have given our lives to him, those whose sins have been paid for by him, he sends us into the world to speak his word, to do his will, and to save his people. Not that you and I can save them in the way that Jesus saved them, but we can show them the message of salvation. We can share with them the gospel that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they might come to a saving faith in Christ. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus states this, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, we call it the Great Commission. It's right before Jesus ascends. It's, it's after this interaction that we see in the room. Jesus is about to go up into heaven to be with the Father, and he gives this commission, this job to his disciples. And he tells them this. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. He says, go and make disciples. He gives them this job. He sends them to go into the world and to make disciples, to go into the world and to tell people the truth, to go into a dark world and to shine the light of Christ that people might know him and trust him and be saved by him. It says to, to preach the gospel and to teach them to observe all that he has commanded to show by our actions what it is like to observe the commandments of Christ. To do the will of God, to speak the words of God so that the people of God might be saved by the Son of God through the power of the Spirit of God. Guys, that's what Jesus calls us to. And that's a big job. I mean, that's an impossible job. There's nothing that, that you and I can do to take dead people spiritually dead people and make them alive again. There's nothing that you and I can do to take someone who is in darkness and hates the light and convince them to step into the light. I can't do that. You can't do that. We're not persuasive enough. We can't make that change happen. And so Jesus comes and he says, peace, peace be with you. I'm gonna send you into the world and I'm gonna give you an impossible task to do. And it's easy to go, what, how, how, am I, how am I supposed to make disciples of all nations? How am I supposed to be a witness to the truth of Christ? How am I supposed to save God's people? Well, look back at John chapter 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, 
he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to accomplish this impossible task? How are we weak, fragile, frail, sinful, imperfect people like you and me supposed to be lights in a dark world? How are we supposed to stand in a world that does everything it can to push us down? How are we supposed to do that? Well, we're not supposed to do it alone because Jesus knows we can't. And so he sends a helper. He sends the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? Is that like the force? When, we're Jesus, when we follow Jesus, do we become Jedi? Like, how does that work? Well, not at all. The, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is very simply the Spirit of God. That the Holy Spirit is God himself. Just as Christ Jesus is God himself, so too is the Holy Spirit God himself. And what does he do? Well, he gives us life. He gives us life, and in John chapter four, Jesus talks about this. He talks about this idea of living water. He's talking to this woman at the well, and, and he asks her to draw some water for him, and then he goes, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for water, and she goes, you don't even have a cup to hold it in, and he says, no, but the water that I give is living water, living water that in you wells up to eternal life. Then later, in John chapter seven, it explains that that living water he's talking about is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God is what brings eternal life to us. That by putting our faith and trust in Christ, we are filled with the Spirit of God, and God's Spirit in us gives us eternal life. So the Holy Spirit, he brings life, and he also He also brings peace. Look at John chapter 14, verse 27, where it says this, peace I leave with you and peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say that I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I Let's go back to verse 25 here. It says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. So the Holy Spirit, he gives us life and he brings us peace, but he also empowers us for the task that we've been given. Did you hear that in verse 26? He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, the Holy Spirit, he gives us life, he gives us peace, but he also gives us power. We see this in the book of Acts as well, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. He says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's saying that when God's Spirit indwells us, when the Spirit of the living God, the Bible says the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, when he fills us, he gives us power to do the job that Jesus has set before us. He gives us power to do the task that Jesus has set before us. 
He gives us life, he gives us peace, and he empowers us for the task at hand. So what does the Christian life look like? What does Christian life look like? It looks like a life not of prosperity, not of wealth, not of ease, not of comfort, not of safety, not of popularity, but a life of peace. A life of peace with God because our sins have been paid for. Our debt has been forgiven and we are made right with the king of the universe. We have peace with God. Christian life is a life of peace with God and it's a life of peace with circumstances. Because no matter what difficulties or trials or hardships this world can throw at us, they're not worth comparing to the glory that has been revealed to us in Christ. No matter what difficulties or struggles or pains we go through, they're not worth comparing to the gift that God has given us because what he's given us is himself. What he's given us is his son. What he's given us is life. It's a life of peace with God, a life of peace with circumstances, and it is a life of being sent. Being sent into a hostile world. Being sent into a world that loves the darkness. Being sent as the light of Christ. Being sent to speak his words, being sent to do his will, and being sent that by us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God might save his people. It's a job that we can't do on our own, but we're not called to do it on our own. Because Christ has sent us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to give us new life, to fill us with that peace and to empower us for the work of ministry, the work that he has called us to, the work of being lights in a world filled with darkness, the work of standing on the truth and calling others into the truth as well, that one day we might spend eternity with him and with them in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this week. God, we thank you for the many truths that you have shown us. We thank you for the truth of God, that you are and you always will be, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. Thank you for the truth of your word, that you show us who you are, you tell us who you are in scripture, and that there's truth that we can rely on, that we can ground our lives on because it is from your mouth, it is from your lips, and since you are truth, we know that your word is as well. We thank you for the truth of Christ, that he came and that he lived a perfect life on our behalf. That he is not just a teacher, he's not a liar, but that he is the Lord, he's God himself. Thank you, God, that though we sin and though we choose things over you, God, you show us mercy and grace. You died for us. You rose again for us. You give us new life, freedom from sin, freedom from condemnation, freedom from death. And God, we pray that we would now live the lives that you've called us to, lives of peace, lives of purpose, and lives empowered by your indwelling spirit. Father, we love you. We thank you for this week. We thank you for this life. In Jesus' name, amen.